0: morning we're going to be looking at what I've called somewhat euphemistically some specific sexual issues. Um, we're going to look at foreplay and we're going to look at the question of rape within marriage and a woman's right or not to defend herself against um, her husband um, with contraception. Um, so those are the kind of the two issues Um, in looking at foreplay in a lecture this is um, a slightly weird topic to be talking about with a group of celibates possibly more than anything else we might cover in this course Um, it won't be as weird as um, what we're going to look at in bioethics next semester that's going to be really out there Um, Last year, the, the guys who were doing this course um, sat down for lunch and the ref with some collegians and the collegian said, so what did you do in class today? Um, and as they, <laughs> as they described all this, uh, the collegian's drawers dropped. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah, right, exactly. Who'd have thought? Okay, so um, there wasn't a huge volume of reading, um, but hopefully you've done that. I'm going to run through a kind of edited summary of that in my notes with you. Um, As I said, this is something in my experience you'll get occasionally in confession. And when it's presented to you, you'll be expected to know coherently what to say. So it's not like I'm expecting you to need this knowledge frequently but when you do need it you're going to need to know what to say one of the dangers is you being more catholic than the church in the sense of somehow being more strict restrictive in terms of what is deemed appropriate or not Um, and An inexperienced celibate could easily think somehow some things being described as part of foreplay just don't sound right. So that's why I'm having you read this to hopefully, maybe risk broadening our knowledge, um, but so that we don't say things in ignorance. Okay, let's start with page one of my notes. Um, So, I've titled this section, Marriage and Foreplay, A General Principle, But Some di- but Some Disputed Applications. Um, so I start with a quote from Janet Smith. Um, so as you can see from the footnotes, this is largely from that article by uh, Thomas Morrow in, what was that, Homiletic and Pastoral Review. Do you all know Homiletic and Pastoral Review as a periodical? It's not a highbrow academic periodical, but it's a periodical that would be written intelligently and frequently with pastoral application. It would be among the kind of things that would be good for you in your future years as a pastor to have reference to. Um, Anyway, so what does Janet Smith say? She says, the principle generally invoked is that consensual actions that culminate in intercourse are morally permissible. So whatever's going on in foreplay, that's kind of the criteria. Is that where it ends up? Is that what its trajectory is about facilitating? Um, Christopher West says, there's nothing inherently wrong with anal penetration as foreplay to normal intercourse. Um, and I note though anal sex does bring health and infection risks so in particular from what I've read proceeding from anal intercourse to normal intercourse brings an infection risk um, but obviously the only reason this is being discussed is that there are clearly some men for whom this um, facilitates the process um, and if it does, morally speaking, if it ends the whole evening where it's supposed to end, then that's the measure of whether it was appropriate or not. Now that said, as a general principle, Thomas Morrow makes this kind of comment and assessment. He says, while all dignified types of foreplay are allowed, The encounter must always end in natural intercourse with the penis in the vagina. Oral genital contact, oral meaning the mouth, is not prohibited. In my own opinion, my own opinion is that this should be avoided except to remedy difficulties with regard to male potency. Why? Because this sort of activity is impersonal and sexual encounters really should be personal, to maintain personal human dignity. And of course, if this activity is repugnant to either party, it would be wrong for the other to seek it. In any case, couples should never allow pleasure to become the main goal in sexual intercourse, as is often the case when one or both seek various sorts of creative foreplay. So, and summarize, so moral is arguing against anal genital contact as being contrary to human dignity. His basic criteria, not to bodies interacting, but to persons and uh, not to individuals objectifying each other. So just pausing there a moment. You can imagine in confession, um, one of the two, because you won't have both of them in confession, um, saying that their spouse wants this or is doing this, um, is this right, or their spouse objects to this uh, and won't go along. Um, So the various sources I've asked you to read all kind of say, if one of the two just doesn't like it, then it's not reasonable for the other to be demanding. And somehow it shouldn't depersonalize the encounter, shouldn't objectify it and make it somehow not about two people doing something together, but two bodies doing something together where pleasure has become the criteria. Um, Is it pretty obvious to note that that's probably tidier to state as a principle than we're not gonna be there in the bedroom. Um, But it would, I'm hoping at least this give you some rule of thumb to be able to say something in the confessional. Um, And if someone's saying to you, well, what does the church say? What does the church say? Not much
1: specific on that,
0: And I think that would be an important thing to say. So, so if, if someone's demanding a specific answer, to say there isn't a specific um, teaching from the church on this. But the church does talk about this being a personal encounter, about being self-gift, about being love. If those somehow don't feel like they're in play, then something's probably not right there. Okay, Jermaine Griset next. Um, So he would be an example of a married moral theologian. So it's rare in a lot of you know, these discussions and moral theology manuals before or after the council to have a commentary from a married man. So summarizing, I say, many acts can appropriately prepare psychologically and or physiologically for marital intercourse. <coughs> so preparation. Words, looks, gestures. Then manual are your hands or oral stimulation with the mouth of the genitals. Self-stimulating acts similarly. So a man who has difficulty with impotence, there would be a number of things to assist him in this regard. But I summarize, uh, Grisey has kind of two contrasting concerns Quoting him directly, all such wholesome efforts to enhance marital intercourse as an experience of communion, so that's his measure, an experience of communion, must be distinguished from the hedonistic use of techniques focused solely on the intensification of erotic sensation. So is what's being done somehow facilitating an experience of communion between the two, or is it just an intensification of erotic sensation? Now he does also note, as we'll quote, um, that the erotic pleasure and seeking it is not problematic. And enhancing it, but if that becomes detached from an experience of personal communion, then something's been been lost. Comments so far in terms of a kind of general approach of what's being articulated here. Um, and that we can see that they're saying very similar things on this page, four different authors. Okay, next, this entire next page is summarising um, Grise from two different sources. Um, he focuses on the question of... Um, incomplete marital acts so how do you what's your reference point in sexual morality well a complete sexual act that's kind of your reference point Uh, if we phrase this in terms of how Janet Smith approached these things when we were looking at her views on contraception um, she said how do you know what something, what it is when it's flourishing, when it's working well so the complete sexual act gives us the reference point to be thinking of anything else. So, how does Grise define the marital act? Um, rather technically and unpersonally, uh, he says, ejaculation by the male in the female's vagina is necessary for sexual intercourse in so far as it is a reproductive function. And so such ejaculation is necessary for a complete act of marital intercourse. So he's not saying that is what sex is about. He's saying a significant part of what sex is about is a reproductive type act. So without that, it doesn't qualifiers as, as a complete act of what it should be I say and thus concerning foreplay etc the minimal condition is that the couple's behavior be the performance required for a reproductive type act so that's kind of foreplay that is a moving you towards a complete marital act. He adds, however, within marriage, various sexual acts short of complete intercourse can be chased if the couple seek in them not pleasure alone, but the wider good of marital communion, in which pleasure is a subordinate element. And I note subordinate, subordinate, but nonetheless a real element. Not lament element. element. Um, in terms of typo there. Um. Okay, so I say and sexual acts short of intercourse are good in themselves if they one, are necessary or helpful to marital intercourse and or two express and foster marital affection, but such acts become bad if they either are three intended to bring about complete sexual satisfaction apart from marital intercourse or are in some ways at odds with the good of marital communion. So, spelling that out, seeking to have ejaculation, orgasm, before the marital act happens or without the marital act at all, that is not what he's saying would be assisting the marital communion. It's replacing the act with something else. Um, But then all kinds of things like a hug, a kiss, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, these are part of marital communion have a kind of broader sense in which they relate to the marital act, but don't need to be um, on an evening when the marital act's going to happen. Now, more specifically, um, female orgasm and stimulation. So he notes um, that the female orgasm isn't necessary for sexual intercourse. So his definition of it up there, that can happen without uh, the woman receiving sexual satisfaction. But the female orgasm, but it does contribute to complete marital intercourse as a mutually satisfying experience of one flesh communion. So he says, hence, acts By the husband or wife to intensify her orgasm are appropriate, acts before or after the husband's ejaculation are in continuity with any complete act of marital intercourse, and there's no moral problem with a husband manually stimulating his wife to orgasm immediately after intercourse, which is over too quickly to give her complete satisfaction. Since this stimulation continues that begun in intercourse, it can pertain to the couple's marital act. So the act is somehow over too quickly for her to have achieved satisfaction in orgasm. Um, He can assist her to that as the completion of the act. Um, without that being the same as masturbating. Um, In contrast, but acts intending her orgasm through arousal not continuous with that involved in marital intercourse would be non-marital acts, would be masturbation, uh, and therefore wrong. Uh, So why am I saying this? So a scenario in which this is being presented to you in confession is what's being described here clear enough for you to know what's being described and to have some idea of therefore what not to say. Have you done probabilism? Okay, so we will we will therefore have to have a section on this at the start of our bioethics course. Probabilism basically is a system for deciding if you have various Catholic theologians who disagree on a topic, which opinion can you follow? So there's some question that the Magisterium has never given a verdict on but there are different Catholic theologians, all of whom are respected by the church who disagree. What can you do? Should you always follow the most strict opinion? Or can you always follow any opinion as long as it hasn't been condemned? Um, Probabilism basically says you can follow what's called a probable opinion, and we'll have to note this then next semester Um, there's a way of evaluating whether an opinion is probable. So it's not just any opinion. It's got to have a coherence in it. It's got to have been said by someone with a certain degree of authority. Why am I saying this? I would say Grise has a status in the church such that if he has said it is permissible, it can be followed as a probable opinion. Given that, it definitely hasn't been condemned by the church. Does that work as a rule of thumb for now? That, and I think that's a thing you can say in the confessional, to be able to say, um, this is a thing we did in seminary, and um, I, I've read a respected author say this is acceptable, um, rather than it sounding like you haven't got a clue what you're talking about and you're just making up something on the spot. There's quite a a difference in giving advice when you're saying, no, I have heard of this before. Um, You aren't the only one to have been in this scenario. Um, And there are respected Catholics who articulate what you're saying is fine. Uh,
2: To clarify, in the first section, just before the end, is it a subordinate but nonetheless real lament or
0: real element? Real element. So he calls it
2: big
0: difference, difference, yeah. So I'm just making the point that a subordinate element is nonetheless an element. Um, A bit like when we were talking about the primary and secondary ends of marriage. If it's secondary, it's nonetheless a real end. Um. Okay, page three. so this is continuing griset 's analysis of incomplete marital acts. So quoting from him, "Sexually stimulating interaction, not intended to immediately lead to intercourse, can be appropriate because it prepares indirectly and remotely for eventual marital intercourse and continues the experience of one flesh communion from past acts. Thus he argues, incomplete sexual acts which lead to arousal are morally acceptable expressions of marital affection. So, last lecture, when we're talking about chastity formation, and I was summarizing uh, Jason Everett and others on criteria for what a boyfriend and girlfriend can do together, they're not married, and in that context, arousal would be a sign that it's time to put the brakes on and step away. He's saying something different in the context of marriage, that they're engaging in whatever with arousal, and that's not a problem, because in their broader context, actually that is part of their their relationship and appropriate. Because they're married, and they are engaging in other times in the, the full marital act. Okay, quoting his kind of next point, distinguishing foreplay and incomplete marital acts from mutual masturbation. And that, in a sense, would be the thing we're wanting to be avoiding as our point of reference. So what would mutual masturbation be? It's bringing someone to orgasm with no intention of the marital act. That you are separating that experience of sexual pleasure from the marital act and intending to do so. That that ejaculation, that female orgasm, that doesn't happen unintendedly, but that is your intention, not wanting the marital act. And in some contexts you could envisage not wanting the marital act as a way of avoiding pregnancy. So you're Catholic, you're not gonna use the condom or the pill, and so you think, well, um, premature withdrawal would be a form of this, um, where the man intentionally withdraws before ejaculation in order to ejaculate outside of the marital act to avoid pregnancy. Okay, so, back to what I'm saying here. Just foreplay and incomplete marital acts which are part of the marital relationship is different from mutual masturbation. So quoting him, a sexual act complete in itself cannot extend previous or prepare for prospective marital intercourse. An act that does not unite the couple in one flesh is not intercourse and so cannot be sexual intercourse. Okay, and then summarizing Griset's listing, acts incompatible with marital communion, what would that include? Well, acts repugnant to one of the spouses, for example, the wife orally stimulating the penis, if she finds that repugnant, that would be incompatible with marital communion. Use of pornographic material to cause sexual arousal. So Grizzly does not comment on this specific scenario, but I then suggest it would seem that even a home video of the couple watching themselves would seem to be objectifying their bodies rather than making the act personal. So he comments about pornography in general. I'm speculating, well, viewing themselves in a video of themselves would seem to be doing the same thing about focusing on the body, not on the person. Then acts involving a significant or avoidable risk of the husband ejaculating outside the vagina. For example, oral stimulation for men who ejaculate easily in such circumstances. Griset phrases this with respect to orgasm, i.e. in a way that includes both spouses, woman or man, acts that intend or wrongly risk orgasm outside of sexual intercourse, acts attempting sexual satisfaction in a non-marital act, acts intending ejaculation outside the vagina. Then also acts causing frustration due to excessive arousal when intercourse is inappropriate. That wouldn't be an appropriate act. Acts of self-stimulation that are not very closely pertained to sexual intercourse. So to summarize all of that, There's a lot, broadly speaking, in terms of foreplay, that a variety of authors um, deem appropriate. The limiting criteria are um, acts that objectify the person rather than enhance marital communion, acts that are repugnant to one of them, and while we might stereotype that as the woman feeling it repugnant, it, it could be the man too. Um, and then various acts that aim by having orgasm ejaculation outside of sex, aim at replacing the marital acts rather than assisting it. And a bit like when we'll look at um, questions around uh, artificial insemination and such next semester in bioethics, assisting the act is different from replacing the act. And there's a kind of well-established criteria that a broad range of assisting the act to its natural conclusion um, is appropriate.
1: So then what about or
0: something? I don't think there'd be a problem. Well, so I was about to say there wouldn't be a problem. There would be a way of taking it for a man who's kind of healthy, but somehow just wants to intensify and make the whole thing even more about pleasure than is a appropriate, that it could lose its focus, but that per se, um, Viagra and whatever else, um, that male impotence is a real issue uh, and can be a real damage in a marital relationship, so a drug that helps in that regard is an appropriate recourse.
2: Yeah. How <coughs> so like the... How, if someone's like, oh, well, it was this much time, or, I mean, Hmm. what is, what is immediately then, like, in the same natural flow of the progression,
0: or? I think what he's envisaging there is either oral or manual stimulation building up to a marital act is fine when the marital act is coming later in that, broadly speaking, embrace.
2: They've already intended that going
0: to be. As you're describing a very passionate farewell, um, I think that would be part of what he's describing as an incomplete marital act that is, broadly speaking, part of their marital communion. So whereas I was quoting Christopher West in the context of a boyfriend and girlfriend arguing that French kissing would lead to arousal and be heading somewhere where they're not free to go, that wouldn't be true of a married couple. So even though they might know that they're gonna, the passion of their embrace is gonna cause arousal, that's not a problem in a married couple.
2: And then most of the thing like we've talked about some scenarios in merge class, but like if a guy comes back from war, yeah,
0: Though, I guess, as you're describing it, are seeking to. That if, right. um, And there'd be a broad range where impotence is such that it would be very rare or unlikely, but not wholly impossible. Um, And so there's a broader sense in which any foreplay type activity is wanting that outcome just not expecting it to be likely to be achieved. Uh, Conscience. Uh, So, you know, we know conscience is one of the the liberal buzzwords that, uh, well, it's okay with my conscience, so therefore it's, I'm going to do it, whatever the church says. I think there's a lot here that actually is a valid scenario for the use of conscience, where if a couple aren't seeking to avoid good moral analysis, ultimately the judgments within these parameters here, is going to come down to their conscience. So if they're asking a, a question in confession, hopefully I've given you some parameters to say something helpful, um, but I think you could also say, I've said, I've given the guidance, the act should be personal, it shouldn't be depersonalizing, it shouldn't be repugnant to you. Um, if it's meeting those descriptions, then you should feel comfortable making that judgment yourself, and that's what the act of conscience is: is a judgment about whether it's right or wrong.
2: Is this mostly advice you've given the confessional, or do you know of any resources for?
1: couples
2: or
0: married couples that would go over some of these things? I don't know, to be honest. Um, it's pretty rare to find an engaged couple that would be open to this degree of guidance. Um, the article I've given you by Morrow there would be one reference, and you've got a digital copy on Populi if you want to download it, um, that you could give a copy to somebody and there it's articulated, not just your words. Um, With marriage preparation, it depends how ready they are and willing they are to receive anything most of the time in marriage preparation you're wanting to articulate enough so that this marriage won't be invalid that glorious standard Um, so that the marriage won't be invalid and you've given them enough of an indicator that if at some stage they're wanting to kind of head in a more catholic direction they've got a vague idea where to start looking and hopefully giving them a thought that actually the fullness of the Catholic approach is something beyond what they're aiming at and has a beauty to it. um, that, At some stage when they're willing to think more, they might think we've got something worth listening to. Okay, completely different issue then. Um, So thus this lecture being called some specific sexual issues, Um, this is completely different. Um, But, so the article I asked you to read from Grisey, um, which also, let's see, there's another author there, I'm following these notes as well though. Uh, who actually I find slightly more convincing on this point. So the scenario is an oppressed wife in a situation where she is being raped by her husband. The sex is not consensual. She doesn't want sex. She doesn't want to become pregnant. How is she able to respond to her husband? So we talk about the marital debt that you give yourself to your spouse, you therefore give your body to your spouse, your spouse therefore has a right to your body, but that isn't somehow a right to be abused. Um, so the husband's right to the marital debt doesn't mean it, he can demand it at any time. So what's the scenario I start with on the top of the page there? Um, So the analogy we're trying to have here is with rape. Um, A woman has a right to defend herself in cases of rape. Next semester in the bioethics course, we'll have a whole lecture on this question in terms of specific protocols uh, that are run in Catholic hospitals A woman turns up having recently been raped, what is appropriate or inappropriate for her to defend herself against the ongoing effect of the man's semen in her body, which is part of, is a continuation of the act of aggression against her. Um, So, an abortion is not a permissible uh, solution. But she can defend herself against getting pregnant. Where she, it then isn't an act of contraception because she didn't initiate the act to begin with. So that the meanings of the act, the unitive and the procreative, those have been thrust apart by the rapist, not by her. So therefore, her using a pill isn't contraceptive. Okay, we'll we'll come back to that next semester, but broadly speaking, that's the the outline of this ethical analysis. Okay, in our scenario here, a wife um, scenario on the top of page four. In a particular marriage, there are just causes to not have more children, say, at this time or indefinitely. If we envisage a scenario where the husband is oppressive and will not limit their use of the marital act to infertile times of her cycle. And I note his being oppressive might not be related to the just causes for not having a child. So there might be valid just causes to not have a child, and he's oppressive to his wife, and those aren't related. It could be that he is violent, abusive, in a way that those are reasons she doesn't want to have a child because she doesn't want the child raised in that environment. Yeah. So let's put that scenario aside and just imagine that there are kind of normal, just reasons to not want to have a child, but the husband isn't gonna cooperate in terms of the timing of the the act, uh, following her cycle and so forth. So he is just imposing herself on her whenever he wills. So the question becomes, may the oppressed wife use a contraceptive diaphragm or jelly to avoid becoming pregnant? Have I described the scenario well enough? So these two methods of diaphragm or jelly, those are two she can do to herself and thus they're under consideration him using a condom would be something he would be doing, not something she would be doing. So the question is, what can she do to defend herself? So, rape analogy. I say, see our rape protocol lecture and analysis in next semester's Bioethics course. There we will note, in advance of anticipated rape, for example, nuns in war zones, and that was a scenario that... um, first came to the Vatican's attention kind of halfway through the last century in this question. Um, A woman can use devices to defend against the rapist's body, his sperm. For example, spermicidal jellies. Defend her body, her ovum. For example, wear a diaphragm. And for example, take an ovulence that prevent her ovulating and thus prevent her being at risk of conceiving. And very briefly, the risk of her ovulating and then conceiving is so low as to permit the small but fatal risk to a potential embryo. Um, We will go through this in more detail next semester in terms of the the chemicals and the bioethics. Um, Are you all aware there are different types of contraceptive pills? So there's, um, most modern contraceptive pills aren't just anovulant, they have a dual function built into them. To first aim to stop the woman ovulating and anovulant, but then have a secondary purpose, if she nonetheless ovulates and conceives, to then prevent the child implanting in the womb. So that's an abortifacient backup effect. Um, that wouldn't taking a pill intending that backup abortifacient effect wouldn't be licit but as described her here um, an anovulant that is just aiming for her to not ovulate and thus not conceive has a very small risk if a child does, is conceived of having a fatal effect, but the risk is so small that it's deemed permissible. We'll look at that in more detail next semester. Um, but that, broadly speaking, is the rape protocol that a woman in general, at risk of being raped, can prepare herself that way. Um, so, uh, Belgian nuns in the Congo, um, in, a, in the midst of warfare, there was this scenario where they were at repeated risk of rape. How could they defend themselves against you know, the violent soldiers coming through their village and such? These were deemed to be appropriate methods that they could take in advance. And in a sense, a nun is a pretty clear example of a woman who isn't seeking to have sex, isn't seeking to avoid the consequences of sex. Um, she just doesn't want it to begin with, and therefore she doesn't need to make herself open to the consequences of sex, namely having a child.
1: That was one of the scenarios that we
0: did cover. So okay. We're familiar with that. Okay, right. And that was covered with the question of defining the object of the act, I'm guessing? Um,
1: no, it was uh, like hot topics, what is contraception, and you know, yeah, it was a contraceptive
0: act. Okay. Um, hot
1: topics, yeah. Up for
0: all, topics. Okay. Um, and we will look, when we look at this in more detail next semester, There are different rape protocols. Some bits within are up for discussion. Uh, Though the broad principle I'm articulating here, I'd say is pretty solidly grounded in the tradition at this stage. So in advance of rape, a woman can defend herself this way. A wife um, at risk of her husband imposing himself on her, is that the same scenario? That's the question. So, is the abused wife in a rape scenario thus permitted um, to use jellies and a diaphragm? Uh, So I shouldn't say permitting, I think grammatically. Thus permitted to use jellies and a diaphragm. And I note two opinions below differ, largely based on whether they consider the oppressed wife to be consenting. So Opinion 1, Edward Bauer says, yes, she may use jellies in her diaphragm. In the case of sexual intercourse forced upon her by her husband such that she justifiably refuses her consent, then there is the right of a woman so victimized to avoid the impregnation of this act and the liceity even of artificial means of doing so and diaphragms, spermicidal foams, etc. Her act seeks prevention of pregnancy, but is not contraceptive because of the justified refusal of free consent on the part of the wife. So his argument is saying she doesn't consent to the act, therefore she doesn't need to consent to the consequences of the act, namely becoming pregnant. In contrast, page five, opinion two from Jermaine Griset. He makes a distinction between whether she consents or whether she doesn't consent. So he says, if the oppressed wife, so let's just pause here. You can be oppressed in many things in your life as a wife, but nonetheless consent to sex. So your husband might threaten you, beat you, refuse to let you see your friends, uh, not let you see your mother, um, all kinds of oppressive behaviors, but you might nonetheless consent to sex. So within here, is making a distinction. A wife who is oppressed and consents, or a wife who is oppressed and doesn't consent. First now the if the oppressed wife consents to sex then he says it's not rape she is being oppressed but that does not make the act rape the husband is committing an injustice against her a special form of infidelity that is an act against the marriage itself but is not rape grisey thus describes a sin distinct from rape namely what he calls imposed intercourse within marriage, which is morally different in kind from rape. He says the oppressed wife must tell her husband she will never consent to sex and will never use contraception and seek to persuade him to only engage in intercourse in the infertile times of her cycle. If necessary, Grise says she must separate from him. And Griset says that her consenting to the act means that her act of using a diaphragm or jelly is not permissible material cooperation. Now in contrast, he says, if the oppressed wife does not consent to sexual intercourse and is in fact being raped, then for this to be true, she may never consent Never initiate sexual activity, never seek pleasure in it, and never do more than perform those outward behaviours demanded by the rapist. Note this description of permissible non-compliance would be the same in any rape scenario. If the above non-compliance is not true, then Grousier says the analogy with rape fails. So in part, these two authors are describing slightly different scenarios in terms of the question of consent. Um, Comments, thoughts? And let's start by making the very obvious observation, this is a very unhappy scenario regardless. Um, And probably within these various permutations more common than we'd like to think. That's the second scenario. The first scenario, um, she's consenting to sex, but um, but at other times in their marriage is being oppressed.
1: There seems like there could be sort of an in-between. Go on. Sort of situation where like she's, I I mean, it seems like there could be like a sort of uh, half-consenting type of thing. Yeah, like a conceding or... Let's just give this over with, giving up, Or like, let's go do this so you stop beating the kids, kind of. Or something, I don't know, there's there's a lot of variations.
0: Though in the second scenario, Wouldn't that be kind of what he's describing? So if she isn't initiating it, if she's not seeking pleasure from it, but she's in a sense fully going along and performing those outward behaviors, um, but not consenting, Is the question really what not consenting means?
1: Maybe. It just seems like there's some. Maybe I was interpreting this more strictly. It seems like there's a sort of half consent or something.
0: I suppose Guizet's point would be in order to treat it as an act of rape and for her to to defend herself as in those criteria, she can't be consenting. Because if she's consenting, it's not rape. But she can not consent and still um, under duress. Cooperate. Um, so she doesn't need to be physically fighting him off for it to be an act of rape. So, you were.
1: Um, so, this may just be my ignorance of contraception, but um, I understand that at least some contraceptives. Um, they, like, if you're on the pill, it means, like, you're continuously not going to conceive. And so I guess my question is um, to what extent, like, does this need to be an ongoing situation, um, or is it, you know, I can imagine a a situation where, um, you know, one of the partners all of a sudden, changes their mind and wants to do this, and the other one doesn't, and so so then, you know, how do you how do you take a contraceptive that takes time to to work uh, in order to stop that from happening? Um,
0: and I guess then that just wouldn't be an option. In the same way, if if the scenario wasn't expected to arrive, she couldn't have a diaphragm a- available to use. Or the jellies. So, kind of that whole package envisages some sense of her anticipating this. Okay. And her anticipating it doesn't mean she's consenting to it. Yeah. She might anticipate her husband will beat her when he gets back drunk. That doesn't mean she's consenting that he's going to do so. If I'm, if I'm honest, I've only ever dealt with it in confession or I suppose some confessional-like spiritual direction, you know, and that someone's wanting, seeing me one-on-one. Um, marriage preparation, I, I just haven't covered it. Um, and I, I've, I've felt my main focus has been on issues to do with communication, relationship, which are very secular views of marriage preparation but actually are important, um, and natural family planning, that those would be there. In the confessional, it's someone's describing something to me and they're not sure whether what they're doing should be, um, that either the husband or the wife is saying they want something and, um, they're putting the question to me, is this okay? And I like the na- simple naive collegian, just listening, going, what? Um, <laughs> Uh, so I'm trying to avoid you being in that scenario. Um,
2: Has, have you ever had like a, a, something that might be close to true velocity in this? Or once they get an answer and kind of have an understanding, they can kind of say for themselves, "Oh, this is a reason." Um, and it's not like, and, "Oh, is it or is it not?" Or we oh, did this for this much time, or kind of getting.
0: I suppose more broadly speaking you will come across scrupulosity with respect to sex a significant amount so you will come across people who in a kind of semi-puritanical manner they're enjoying it and they're just not comfortable about the fact that there's pleasure here and that's a thing that you somehow need to approach not just in terms of the question of sin but just where does pleasure fit in the christian life Um, uh, and if, they, if they're okay with enjoying a donut, they should be okay with enjoying sex and it may be that um, in England at least we all have a phrase people say um, oh it's a bit naughty isn't it? Me- meaning they enjoyed it <laughs> um, so. okay so wrapping wrapping up there we've covered a range of obscure things today um, that I expect only to be relevant to you in obscure scenarios, but when they come up, you need to have had some guidance so that you can say something intelligent that isn't just your off-the-cuff thought, um, but is rooted in the tradition that's gone before us. Uh, we don't meet on Thursday because of